So that I would like to think if you're designing social housing, that the places you're designing would have enough complexity in them for people to take them over and to have that kind of wearing my loose old coat feeling that you can sort of settle in and use parts of, of the home for, for the activities that are part of your life. Hello and welcome to What Do Buildings Do All Day, a podcast about architecture and the lives we all live in the company of buildings. I'm Emmett Scanlon, and this week I talk to Sheila O'Donnell, one of Ireland's most celebrated architects. With John Toomey, Sheila has been running their practice O'Donnell and Toomey in Dublin for over 30 years. The practice has designed and built theatres, cinemas, primary schools, university buildings, libraries, student centres, bridges, art galleries and housing. It is impossible to summarise their achievement and influence on architecture, culture and discourse in Ireland and around the world. And among many of their awards in 2015, the pair were awarded the Royal Gold Medal in London, which is one of architecture's highest achievements. The conversation with Sheila, though, was triggered by the death earlier this year of writer, cartographer and publisher Tim Robinson and his wife Mairead Robinson, who were both based in Randstone in Galway. Sheila and John were great friends of this couple, and Sheila is now involved in the campaign to hold their house and its place for future use. I was curious and wanted Sheila to tell me about the house as she had experienced it, what it was like, and from there the conversation moved to thinking about houses as dynamic, unfixed things, to Tim's own writing on the house, to working with old buildings in her practice, to theatre design, and to how designing housing would be a pinnacle in Sheila's career. Sheila was intrigued though by the question of what it is that buildings do all day, and it's right there that the conversation began. I mean, I would start by saying that when, when you asked me to do this, I thought it was a really interesting question, what do buildings do all day? And because Tim Robinson's house in Roundstone was on my mind, which is now an empty house and a house that's falling into disrepair, but a house with a lot of history and culture attached to it, I started thinking, well, one thing that buildings do is wait. And... And in a way that led me to generalize, and maybe we'll talk later more about what does that mean? How does the building wait? But uh, the reason I'm thinking about Tim's house is that um, I first I first encountered the house probably in the early 1990s when I was bringing a group of UCD students out to the Aran Islands, to Aran to do a project. And Tim had by then moved to Roundstone and was working away on his map of Connemara. So Rachel Chidlow and myself said, look, we'll just pop in and talk to Tim Robinson and see if he'd come over to Aaron and talk to our students, because we thought what better way to be introduced to Aaron than talk to the man who's mapped it and written such wonderful books about it. But Tim was very definitely was not coming over to Aaron to talk to our students. Uh, and he was, you know, he was a bit terse. And that was a character of an aspect of Tim's character. But he did let us come into the room where he was working on the map. And that was wonderful. But what we realized, what I realized then is that his house was a kind of two-part house that down on the level of the pier in Roundstone at the end of the pier was a courtyard what he calls a courtyard this was a kind of a yard and then the single story building in which there were a set of interconnected rooms where he was does his writing and was drawing his map and they were there was a great kind of smell of damp and um but an amazing sense of the presence of the sea through all these windows because the room is down the floor is probably below high tide level and it's right on the edge of the pier. So it's kind of, it's it's a sea room. So 
I was intrigued by that. And then the sense that I could see up a big flight of outdoor steps to a garden and that was where his house was. But although it's part of the same building, they're totally separated because there's no stairs connecting it. So, and then I was reading his work and reading the beautiful essay he wrote, House on a Small Cliff, around 2000, I think, or it's maybe just after. I felt then that I was brought into the house because it's such a wonderful description of a place, maybe through starting, the description is about himself and Moraid sitting at the fire reading books and then it kind of, on a winter's night and then moving into their bedroom and the, somehow just the description of moving from the small library through to the bedroom, hmm. he goes through the rooms of the house, but also really strongly the character of this house, which is that it's a, there's one very big room with roof lights, which are both bring in light, but also reflect the light inside and bring in the moon and the stars and then the windows relating to the sea beyond. So he talked a lot about light and how it moves through the house and about mirrors and the presence of mirrors in the big room, but also in the corridor that the house becomes almost like an optical instrument as you move around parts of it reflecting off each other. So I mean, I think it's a remarkable essay and I think it's a really good description of uh, place and interiority and of home in a way, because he goes on to describe how they the bedroom and how they lie in the bed, looking at the windows of the birds and hearing sounds of the sea. So it probably wasn't long after that, that I that I actually finally got into the house and, it, you know, significantly, it was around the time he, I think it was in 2006 that Tim and Moraid who have no children, decided that they or came to an arrangement with NUIG that they would leave them their house. And as a place of research and learning and gathering and a place that people could come and stay and people could come and think and discuss and exhibit. But they felt the reason they were doing it then was when they were in relatively good health was they thought they were very excited at the idea that this, what Tim described as the wind of futurity would blow through the house when these young people and people from yeah. all over would come in and talk. But they wanted to, st they, they were feeling a bit jealous that they would not see that because they obviously would be dead by the time the house was left to NUIG. So they said, well, okay, let's make the arrangement now and let's start having the events and doing things in the house so we can experience it while we're still alive. And we were invited to speak, John and I, at one of those events, um, which were really interesting they were called the Roundstone, they seem to have different names, the Roundstone Conversations or the Roundstone Colloquia, but they were, there was a kind of overarching title of Unfolding Ideas. Hmm. Uh, the name of Tim and Moraid's map and publishing house was Folding Landscapes. This was about unfolding ideas. And so they tended to have people from different disciplines, like there was poets and there were writers and there were scientists who would come. And it was a kind of two-part event where you'd spend the afternoon in the house with a small group discussing and presenting ideas. And then in the evening, one of the invited people, in this case it was us, would do a lecture in the village hall for everybody in the, in the town or in the surroundings. So there was always also a feeling that they wanted it to be a place of learning for scholars, but also a place of expanding and sharing with, with the community. Um, and then, so we met them through that and somehow we became quite friendly through, they, I think actually when someone said this to me recently, I think it was Moya Cannon, that I think they they related to the fact that John and I were a partnership, we're also married and that our work was was very much our life or our life was was very much bound up in our work. And I mm. think they felt some kind of parallel. So 
that that was that was a kind of connection. I think they really enjoyed our talk because the way we we exchanged, we took turns speaking, and was a kind of conversation, and not quite not an argument. But they they described it as being like what an agile of Bercho, which is the an Irish form of conversation between two people, often married and often quite argumentative. And and Tim then always our our office we describe ourselves as O'Donnell plus to me. So Tim just start, always called us plus then after that. So whenever he writes to us, or sorry, he used to write to us, he's no more with, it's always dear plus, actually I've got something, capital plus, you know, dear plus, or sometimes he just put the plus sign. So, you know, we came to know the house very well and the amazing sense that it was, is not in any way grand, it's in quite poor condition. There's really one good room, which is the kind of long pitched roof centre to the house, which is the big room where the conversations happen and the sea is looked at. The small study as part of that partitioned off and then everything else is an addition made at different times and kind of messy and not not appropriate or not not particularly interesting but they occupied it as a kind of warren and as it's almost like there was the the grand hall and then there was a sort of set of caves off that where the rest of everyday life happened and then the way the house related to the garden was really important and i think i mean one of the reasons i'm concerned now about the house is that I think it's not just a house, it's a house and a garden and a piece of land and it's a place. And I think Tim's work was so much about describing, identifying and naming places. Yeah. And they really made this garden, which, as Tim says in one of the essays, is a real surprise because it's on the house is on the end of a pier. It feels kind of urban and hard. And you go through the house and upstairs and from the upstairs, you, this garden unfolds where they have planted and made paths and made the built up what Tim called his numerological garden. So I suppose the thing is they also were very much, apart from Tim going out on his expeditions and walks to gather information and to for maps and for books, they were very house-based and they were the centre of everything. And in a way, you nearly always met them in their house. Uh, so they and the house, to me, become one thing. I, mean, they don't, I think they only once came to visit us in our house in Connemara. But, well, they didn't drive and maybe that was also, it was interesting. They just, they didn't have a car. They never drove. Tim had a bike, but I didn't think in recent years he didn't really cycle much. So it was, I mean, it just it was fortuitous that they lived in this amazing house, which had yeah. this sense of being in the place and in the sea and in the edge of the village. And maybe if they didn't have that house, they would have gone out more. You know, maybe, maybe the fact that the house, first of all, really related to its context, to the sea. Although oddly, the big room has absolutely no relationship with the garden and you wouldn't know there was a garden. But it related so strongly to that place. And maybe because it was in such a significant place at the end of the pier, it attracted people to come in. Mm. I mean, that's a, you know, there's a thing about houses and buildings. Like if they lived in a different kind of more anonymous house on the corner in the middle of a street or something, I don't know whether they would have been, whether the house would have been so much the centre of their existence. In in that text, the house in a small cliff that you refer to, I mean, when you read it, it is it is an extraordinarily evocative and kind of complete description of a house in some ways, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. he links he links the cliff, this which is the yeah. physical place, the house, its history, his imagined future, their memory, their atmosphere talks about growth and decay in the garden. He's talking about four creatures living there, which is including yes. him, him and the animals. 
Yeah. We talk about activity, rest, seasons, rooms, uh, climate, and it's it's so entirely complete. It kind of suggests in a way that houses are these unfixed things. You know, they it's a, obviously an anchor at the edge of a cliff, but yet he is in that text oscillating back and forth through time and through landscape and through his own direct experience and through wider experiences of the previous history of these buildings that yeah. they're now occupying. Yeah. Um, in your work and in your kind of framing of thinking about a house, um, do you do you think that do you think that houses are are also unfixed things? Because I imagine when you come to design one, you're both thinking of things you know from your own experience. You're thinking of great houses from the past or houses you've mm. worked on in the past, and then you're also projecting forward to a new life for new people who are going to end up living in this place. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I, I absolutely think that a house is not a fixed thing. And I maybe for an, maybe one reason is that I have always lived in old houses myself. So I've never, like we've never designed our own house as a new building. And I suppose that would be an interesting and strange challenge because it would need to have that fix. Well, at least temporarily a fix. I mean, you, I think there'd always be a contingent sense. And I mean, I think... I, I like the word contingent very much about buildings and about architecture and about how people use buildings, because I think there is always a sense that there might be a different way of doing something. And I also like to feel when I'm designing a building that it has spaces in it that are that have this kind of contingency that people, they don't absolutely fix how you have to, how you would use them and that or that don't even feel fixed in the way they're made. So we'll say the house that I'm living in now, which we've been living in for over more than 25 years, which is a, you know, an 1830s Dublin house, a sort of small three-story late Georgian. And we have done certainly three main phases of work to it since we moved in, but we're always tweaking and adjusting things. And, it's, and that is about life. I mean, I would say that the three phases of work that we've done are related to the stages of life we've been at and what sort, you know, whether when we had smallish children and then when the when they became older and needed more space for independent activity, we made changes to the house to accommodate those things. And now they're gone. Maybe the changes we make are smaller in scale, but equally significant about, you know, if it's stage of life we're at. Like a huge project a few years ago here was the installation of a handrail on the stairs from our lowest, our ground, what people call the, 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 low, the lower, the below entrance room, the garden level up to the, main to the front the front first front door level because actually when we bought the house it had been divided up into flats and there was no stairs connecting those two levels and we put in the stairs but it didn't have a handrail and somehow you know for 20 years that was fine I mean kids were small but small children understand how to learn things but and then we felt it was we both are both of our mothers were quite old and we thought well we need a handrail because it's hard for them to go upstairs without a handrail but actually I realize now you know I probably quite need the handrail myself too from time to time. But then, you know, that it's interesting that it was such a challenge to do that because we want to think about something that worked with the house, but worked with our lives, worked with the other work we're doing. So when we do work in our house, I think we're always, it's always somehow an experiment about mm -hmm. how we live, but also about how we might make other buildings. I might just briefly go back to the Robinson house because of course what I didn't say is that Tim and Murray died this year and they, as agreed in 2006, left the house to the university in Galway, but with the with a, a requirement that they would uh, convert it into what is called the Robinson Centre, as had been agreed and as had been designed by us. But the university turned down the bequest and said they didn't want it. So 
that left Tim's nephew, John Drever, who's the, who's the um, executor, with a house on his hands, which he had to pay um, inheritance, inheritance tax on. So I have been, since they died in April, very quickly I realised that I, I really felt a strong sense of their, their wishes, um, which they had expressed often to me, and, and Mairead particularly having a belief that we, I and John, that we could make this project happen and could make sure that the house was not sold for commercial development. So during the early part of the lockdown, I, I on my walks, I sort of gradually realized, OK, I have to do something. So anyway, I started a campaign and at least so far, we've reached the point where the house has been secured and won't be sold for commercial development. And then John's, John Drever, Tim's nephew, is very, very involved in making trying to make it happen. But an interesting thing talking to Tim and Mairead about their house is they were not sentimental about the physical um, building of the house, despite the book, the, the essays we've read. They were they would like they wanted to see a change, you know, and they wanted something dramatic and radical to happen. And when we brought students down to do projects, you know, they liked the one that was a 10 story tower on the pier or something and completely knocked down the house. Now, that was, of course, um, a speculative project, but they were very. They didn't feel that in order for their memory to be retained there and um, for the sense of the life they had to go on, that the actual all the physical aspects of the house had to be retained. And so that's another question as to whether a thing that's something can live on somehow, how much you need to keep to make it still be itself and how much you can take away and how much you can add so that it becomes a new thing, but the new thing hasn't forgotten about the old thing. I mean, sorry, that sounds a bit complicated. I know, I mean, I really love working with old buildings. I like that conversation because you don't start with the blank page. You know, you start with a player, which is the building, and the building is talking to you all the time, and you're talking to it, and you're trying to assess what to keep, what not to keep, what can change, what needs to change. I suppose our my first serious scale project was the Irish Film Centre, and that was a really good example of a very complex set of existing historic buildings. And it was so interesting to have that conversation. So, I mean, the thing about saying that in my own house, we're adjusting the house in response to our own lives. We're also working with what it's telling us. What mm. are its essential aspects? What what are the things that make it itself? Uh, how much you can change, you know, without without taking away the value. Um, and I think it's I mean, it's very interesting, the psychological aspects of how people identify what makes a place feel like home. And when I was reading Tim's essay, which I think is a wonderful description of, of a house and a home, it reminded me of some other things I'd read. Well, Primo Levi has written about his house in a short essay, which is much more sort of practical and terse, say, than than Tim's essay. But it's also about by describing things and places and wall panelling that somehow they, they're all about memories of his own childhood, his children's childhood, because it's the house he lived in across from his own childhood into his adult life. And also a story by William Maxwell called The Thistles in Sweden, which I've written about before, where he, it's about a couple living in a flat and really he describes the stages of their lives through the physical entity of these rooms, the character of the rooms, the kind of light that comes into them, the kind of curtains and wallpaper they put up, which represent aspects of how they feel at certain stages in their life and which later make them remember those stages or those moods of their lives. 
So it's a complicated business and making houses. On that thing of sentiment, I mean, it's very interesting from that you say that Tim and Raid weren't sentimental about change, yeah. which somehow feels remarkable when, I mean, I've never, I never met them. I didn't know them. I only know them through their work. But when you read the way he writes about the place, one would imagine there's an incredible attachment to it. But then it's, it's so interesting to hear that that is not how we might necessarily understood that this is a protectionist question. It's not about holding things with no impermanence. And of course, it makes sense in the way that he writes about the house and thinks about the world that, that a, new, a new version of events would unfold. There's a balance, isn't there? There's a, you, told, you called it a complicated business, but mm. you also have to articulate an attachment to buildings at a certain point to hold them and hang on to them maybe in the way that you're describing it, listen to them to, so that we're, mm. we're keeping them going and we're saving them for future generations and we're not just dumping things and discarding them for the sake of them yeah. for yeah. some sort of future progress. I mean, you talked about the Film Centre, the Film Institute, that's a, a prime example of how an entire culture of a building and its former use was held in the city for, for future use. How do you avoid that sentiment and how do you make that case to hold existing structures as being valuable, particularly contemporary structures, you know, in the last century. Yeah, um, well, see, that's, and it, there hasn't been as much work done on that, but I think it's really interesting, you know, how, what do we do with buildings from the 70s and 80s that at the moment in Dublin, the 60s and 70s, they were being knocked down wholesale everywhere, and it's really sad to see it, because every piece of construction has its own latent intelligence about how it's built in terms of its structure or its sort of its bones and its 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 anatomy and I think each of them has a kind of value so I would say oddly yes that you need to be sort of unsentimental in your assessment of the the kind of what you've got like what have I got here if you're looking at say a 60s or 70s office block and someone wants to knock it down and you're trying to argue against it just there is there's a lot of value in things and actually those buildings tend to be quite generic and in a sense that means they should be quite easily transformable into other things and again maybe it's about stripping away the the kind of um surface elements that give them one kind of atmosphere and saying okay well if we strip it back to its bare bones now how do we use it and um how do we maybe because anyway i think now we probably need to reclad a lot of those buildings for reasons of energy conservation that they don't have very high levels of insulation because that wasn't an issue at the time they were built so i think it i would certainly believe that before knocking things down one should always assess what potential they have for transformation and things sometimes transformation can happen with quite a a small number of moves you know you can transform something from feeling like one thing to feeling like another thing so i think that just because the buildings that say we've been tending to work on where we're working changing a new building an old building for new use they tend to have tended to be 19th century buildings but that's just because those are the buildings that have reached a certain point in useless usefulness and maybe their their previous use is no longer relevant but the buildings that were built in the 60s and 70s also are they represent their time. They represent a culture that was happening at that time. So I would say for the same reason or some of the same reasons, we should try to think about keeping and transforming them. And, I, you know, again, the lockdown has been amazing because of just taking the daily walks, especially in the 2K and 5K limits. And mm. so I was always in the 2K stage walking up and down the canal because it's the Grand Canal near my house, but and looking at a lot of 
buildings around Fitzwilton being demolished and a lot of other buildings being built and feeling very, very sure that what's being built is not better than what's been demolished and wondering, just looking at the actual physical pain of the demolition, because those concrete buildings, you know, there's bits of tangled um, reinforcement hanging out of them and you just feel the physical violence of taking them apart and wondering, it's just another frame building. Why have you got to knock that one down to build this one? And maybe the original ones were more modest and therefore more fitting in their um, response to the places they're in. Um, so it, it, I have felt this time to be a really stark experience of just, just seeing in front of me one kind of building being knocked down in favour of another building being built beside it or eventually on top of the site where it was and wondering what is the meaning of that? What What's, what's that about? And actually, I... I just think, as I said before, because working with an old building is really interesting and an old building can be, you know, a building that was built 10 years ago because it's not you're not starting with a, a blank page. You're, you're starting with an inheritance of something that someone else obviously valued at the time that they made it. And then your responsibility is to analyze it. And so the thing I said was, was probably during the film center because of so many different bits of building built at slightly different times that we came up with this description of being subtraction and addition is how we approach old buildings that just sort of first look at them and measure them and that's a really important part somehow just getting to really know the building and then just thinking about what bits first of all need to be taken away in order to free it up for a new use and then what you can do to transform it but without uh, removing the memory of it mm. so yeah i think it's i think it's certainly not just a practical business there's a lot of um there's a lot of complex things which go into psychology or something about understanding what the meaning of things and the importance of um, memories and messages is. Adrian Forshee talks about concrete buildings, you know, and he talks uh, it was a couple of years ago, he was talking about, again, a move within England and, and the wider UK to demolish their so-called brutalist buildings brutalist. or the buildings in the 50s and 60s. And he also talks about he flips the thing about buildings are waiting around and says, it's just too soon. It's just too soon to know. We've got to wait and hang on until we understand what we're going to do with these guys. Um, and I think sometimes that implies maybe a little bit that buildings have um, personality. And, and again, back to the way Tim writes about the house, they have some embedded history and, and energy about them that, that requires you to kind of listen. I mean, how do you approach how do you approach that and how do you how do you kind of explain or articulate this thing about buildings waiting in in the way that you might use it and in your own work well i think actually from having worked with old buildings and believing that i've experienced that sense of a building holding memory but then also holding anticipation you know that you go into an old building and you feel something about how it was used but you also feel something about the future that i think we have consciously in the new work we've done tried to design buildings especially buildings that are for some kind of social activity or like student use or cultural use particularly schools colleges cinemas and stuff like that that we tr and theater maybe especially trying to think about designing spacious spaces consciously that have a feeling of of having moments in them where people could linger and stop and sit aside and be in the place, but slightly outside it. And I think that's the idea that you 
would somehow say, I think in the stairs of the London School of Economics Student Centre, we were really trying to make the stairs a place in the building because we felt that stairs are the kind of places where encounters happen. So we the stairs is quite wide and it has bends and twists in it and bits that overlook it. And I think we were trying to make spaces where would have a certain charge in their atmosphere that would not feel neutral, that maybe you come around a corner and you feel something, oh, something was happening here and it's over now and I missed it. And that somehow can a space hold, uh, I suppose that's an emotion, what is that, a, a sort of feeling like that. And I think we're always trying, I suppose it's taking, um, to make things not neutral, but then not over specify them because I think that's also a risk. So I think, I mentioned the word contingent earlier. I'm interested in spaces in the spaces in between in buildings, the spaces between two rooms or two or two spaces or the porch or the entrance or the way out to a garden or the stairs and circulation and movement as being opportunities for a kind of for people to take breath, to take take a rest, to gather themselves. Because um, I think that sometimes buildings can be very intimidating and it's quite hard to sometimes to walk into some buildings you would be afraid to enter and you'd think oh I think this is not for me not or for you're me. afraid if you go in the door someone will immediately a big empty hole and someone say can I help you what do you want and you go oh so and I suppose we were lucky with the kind of work we did early in our practice that I remember long conversations with David Kavanagh who was the first client he was running the Irish Film Institute when we first started thinking about the film centre and it was all about how do you make a place feel like everybody is welcome here and everybody owns it and it's absolutely no sense of intimidation, no sense of hierarchy, no sense that this is for one kind of person, but not for another kind of person. And there we had the advantage maybe that I think some a lot of people find old buildings easier to be in than new buildings. And that's always I mean, that's really challenging as an architect as well, that when clients say that to you, when you especially we've done a number of theatres and especially with theatres, people always like making drama in found space and they're right and because there is some and it may be because of the layers of time and the layers physical layers that are built up in a space that make it less singular and more adaptable just to to taking on a, a particular atmosphere in a moment and so we we found doing theaters we're trying to make say a studio space trying to work out what is it about the found space that makes it easier for people to be in Hmm. And I don't know, I don't really know if, if we have the answer, but I think one, say, in the the in the Lyric Theatre, which, I mean, interesting, you know, theatres call themselves the house, hmm. um, you know, the house. And we, when we were designing the Lyric, we really, our motto in the competition was a house for Lyric, because we felt a theatre is a kind of a house, it's a kind of home, there's a company that are attached to it and people who really feel associated. But we tried to make the little studio theatre have that kind of feeling a bit like an industrial found space so we made it the walls inside a brick uh there's actually a window a big window that was of course subject of a lot of discussion because people you can't have windows in theater it's ridiculous you don't need light noise will come in and we said well we put the window in we'd put a huge wooden shutter over it so you never you don't ever need to use it if you don't want to but of course they use it all the time so and then we have a kind of industrial retractable seating and just try working with them really to try and identify what it might be that makes it feel probably what people don't like saying theatres if it feels too clean and too pure and too um I mean it's interesting, isn't it? 
galleries have the white box and theatres have the black box. And mm. those became kind of paradigms, I suppose, in the late 20th century about these two different art forms. And maybe in both cases, we would be maybe maybe not so much the white box, because I think in a in a museum or a gallery, you the, the, you do need a really neutral background because people are going to put physical things that are to do with visual, just a kind of visual experience. But in theatre, I think they're often looking for some kind of atmosphere to to work off and um, in making space and that needs to be able to be brought to the foreground, but also recessed. Mm. So in a way, I think nearly every building is a house and a house is like Le Corbusier said, you know, a museum is a house and a house is a museum. There's truth in, in that. Maybe that's what makes houses so interesting, that they're, they're theatres, they're museums, they're galleries, they're schools, they're yeah. <laughs> caves, they're... It, it's, it's true. I mean, and then in the, in the lyric particularly, because it's a theatre, it is a house for theatre, a theatre house, and it has a company and, and so on. But you go there as a, you don't go, you know, you don't go there in a domestic situation. You're arriving there to participate in the theatre event. The in-between space there, which is a remarkable piece of, I don't know, public or civic realm buried in that building, which is this staircase from street to, to street to seat or something. That space is just so, so good, I think, at preparing you for both understanding your individual place in the world, you know, as you come from your house or office or whatever, and then you're you're arriving into your seat. How did you? How do you then also take this concept of this idea of house, but not get sentimental and and understand that these are civic and public institutions that have a, a wider role to play in society, and they also have to you have to tidy the house up a little bit or something to yeah. make it more speak yeah. more. No, I think we were very conscious of wanting that feeling um, that when you go to the theater, you're on a night out, you know, and when you come in the door, you should feel I'm here. You know, this is the theater. I'm, you know, so we wanted it to feel kind of exciting and energizing and people would be not necessarily dressed up in their best clothes, but kind of in in themselves in the world that it is, as you say, it's a shared experience. So I think that we're really consciously trying to make the spaces have a certain level of dynamic that means that every that, that the audience, as they can walk in and walk up the stairs, are part of theatre, they're part of the experience. Uh, interestingly, the, the reason there's that huge stairs is because there's a big level change on that site and that the stage had to be at a certain level and the entrance at another level. But those sort of things are really interesting as well. And also it's a strange, very triangular in plan that the site triangular shaped sites. So there's there are kind of angled cornered spaces. It's somehow about working together with the characteristics of the site mm. and using them as a way of further developing the character of the building for its own use, which in that case was theatre and it's lyric theatre. So it's mostly spoken word. It's about a certain type of exchange and culture. I'm wanting to have that feeling of exchange of words. So say the bar is very open to the foyer and it's all part of one sequence. And I probably, I don't know if it's to do with the building or not, but the actors and the people making the theatre almost always end up coming into the bar after the show as well. So they mix with the audience and which apparently they didn't do in the old lyric, but, and none of us kind of quite know why they're doing it now. But I would say the things I was talking about earlier about trying to articulate those kind of movement spaces to make them complex and interesting by kind of interactions. So as you come up the stairs in the lyric, 
There's a window in the wall above you on the left, which is at an angle, which in fact is a window from the rehearsal room down onto the public stair, which is placed. And it also is in the little kind of triangle off the rehearsal room, a place the director can stand out of the rectangle of the room where the actors are preparing the work. So the director can be kind of hanging between the audience below and the actors in the room. And obviously that's unlikely to be happening at the same time because they're probably not rehearsing while the play is going on. But I think it was also that sense of giving people who are coming there to see the work just a, a small glimpse into a, the life of the theatre. I think everyone is intrigued by the idea of actors and rehearsals and what's going on behind the scenes. And then also the, the, the green room looks down or the sorry, the, stat, the social room for the people who work in the building looks down onto the stairs. But you can't really see into it, but there is a sense of you know, the life going on in layers above. And that was in the in our competition design that was on the idea of the house for lyric was that the audience would be moving through, but that the, the people who even the, the office, you know, mostly in theatres, the actors are celebrated, but the people behind the scenes are not part of it. So we wanted the offices and people who are working in the admin and in the box office to have that sense of connecting to the buzz as well. So as you come up the stairs above you, there's a walkway which is connecting the office to the stairs and actually to the rehearsal room. So I think it's to not to separate one one group of people from another. So in our effort to make sure that the audience has some sense of a, a kind of introduction to or to the magic of what makes theatre or to the complexity of what makes theatre and vice versa, the people who work there are always aware of who the people coming through are. So I think that consciously designing interactive opportunities, which even if there's never anyone at that window, the window itself is a connection between the rehearsal room and the public part of the building. So that's the thing maybe about buildings waiting or buildings having a personality or something that the window is the person looking down onto the stairs. It doesn't need an actor or a director to be in that window. Mm. It's the fact of, I don't know if that makes sense. And I, but, I, but I do believe that buildings, that there are those moments in buildings. You know, that a window, when people talk about a window is an eye, a window sometimes, and different windows behave in different ways. Like in some ways a glass wall isn't as powerful as a window in a wall often because the window in the wall is more potent and maybe more clearly expresses something about looking through or seeing in or out or channeling a bit of light in or out. Not that I'm against glass walls. Glass walls can be wonderful, but it's a different. Um, and that's one of the really interesting things about being an architect. You know, you're wondering, is this, does this room want a big glass wall to the garden? Yes, maybe it does. But actually on this side, maybe a small window that just looks out to a particular moment or a particular connection is really important as well. And so maybe in the lyric also, there's this, there are a lot of windows. So in the daylight, like most, the old building was all dark and nobody was ever in there in the daylight. But it looked this this beautiful sight looking on the river, lagging amazing trees. Mm. So we made a huge gla, gla, timber framed glass wall looking out the river. And but people do. It turns out, of course, people are in there in the daytime now. They come in for their coffee, or they come in for a drink or the actors are rehearsing and the people are meet, having meetings there. So the 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 course you know, the, of a day from sunrise to sunset is reflected quite a lot, even though it's a building you might associate with nocturnal use. It still registers morning and afternoon and evening. And even at night, being able to see out the river has its own kind of value. 
Yeah, that yeah. touches on your earlier point you made about designing something that's not neutral, but also not too fixed. So in a way, you've these moves you've made, which seem on one hand simple, but actually are quite radical, enable new new ways of using this house for theatre, new yeah. forms of appropriation. You mean people go there to meet and, you know, and, and work there in, in a whole, yeah. new, whole new way. Well, that's one of the really nice things, actually, is when there's two... As in, when you go back to a building that you've designed, there's, there are two things that can be realized. First of all, it's really nice when people are using it the way you thought they would. And they, oh, that's great. They're doing the thing I meant them to do. But what's really nice as well is when they're using it not the way you thought they would, but doing different things. Like, for example, having performances in the long bar and the lyric, which never occurred to us really that that was a good space for performance. But they use it for reading, small scale readings, poetry readings and things, or just generally finding people I love that when you come in and they're, you know, they're using it back to front or upside down. You know, they're doing they're doing things in the space they weren't that wasn't designed for that thing. The people find ways they kind of uh, quarry different kind of uses out of something once they have it. And that's maybe a point you made earlier about that that something isn't that things aren't necessarily permanent and fixed the way they are. But there's an there's an adaptability which is a really important part of people, you know, there's a sort of comfort of occupation. It's like wearing a nice loose coat that you, you know, you can put it on over and, you know, lots of layers or you can wear it on its own and you just feel cosy and you feel relaxed. And I think that house should have that capacity. And actually that, I mean, the thing I'm thinking about at the moment, because I hope we're just about to start doing more social housing in Dublin, and I'm really, really interested in that subject of social housing, how to make group housing for more than, you know, not a house for a particular client, but for a group of people. And I think that is a really serious question for us as to how you make homes that are not designed for a person that you know, but for lots of people that still will have that sense of adaptability, sense of um, people being able to feel a kind of ownership that it's theirs. And I suppose what's exciting about doing a housing project as opposed to a house is that it also involves designing more like a neighborhood or, or a kind of community and the space that the spaces between in that case become the spaces between a number of houses rather than the spaces between rooms. And even the thing about, which is because we're doing a, pro a competition about housing recently, and I realized that in the brief, it's all about 35 one bed units and the, the word unit is used all the time. And I was just saying to John, what is the word? Because it's not, it's not a flat necessarily. You don't know. It might be a house, might be an apartment if you're flat. And, Maybe the word that Americans used, I mean, I found myself just saying homes because yeah. I just don't want to say unit because then I think if I'm designing something that's called a unit, it becomes like a formula. Oh, the bedroom is 12 and a half square meters, the living room is this, and you put them together and click, there you have it. Whereas even the the um, the pandemic that we're in where everybody's at home, we were working on some housing and I was thinking, okay, well, listen, to, we, we need these, in, we need in between spaces now. You need little spaces where someone can put a desk that's not their bedroom, it's not the kitchen. They're not at the kitchen table, they're somewhere else. But houses always needed that. But at least now we're being given an excuse to say we need that, that we need to expand the idea of a home from just being a list of rooms, you know, kitchen, living room, bedroom, bedroom, bedroom. That there's something about the whole place that needs to hang together and it needs to offer people a bit more flexibility about how they use it. And I think that probably is about having generosity of what's called circulation, which I suppose is the in-between spaces, the, the undesignated places. So that I would like to think if you're designing social housing, that the places you're designing would have enough complexity in them for people to take them over 
and to have that kind of wearing my loose old coat feeling that you can sort of settle in and use parts of of the home for the for for the activities that are part of your life because everybody has different activities in their lives but and so I, I think it's obviously we have a housing crisis in Ireland we need to supply lots and lots of homes as an emergency but they also need to be the right kind of places that mm. that have um that people can stay in for a long time and don't have to move every time a slight change in their life occurs I would say you haven't done nearly enough housing and <laughs> that's no. that's not because you haven't wanted to no, certainly um isn't. but you know you've made the timber yard in Dublin which is an extraordinary um piece of urban public infrastructure at the same time as being you know social housing I mean why would you as an architect at this stage of your career I mean you you know want to continue to make houses and housing because what is it well, about that subject that's oh. that architecture is something to say and how would you describe that well I would I mean I I have often said that I think that you know part of the, my job as an architect is at its most idealistic is building society you know that you're helping to build society so I do think that what we tried to do in Timberyard and would want to do in other um, is is in other housing projects is to build a community, to build a place that has a sense of neighbourhood and allows people to have belonging. And I think that's quite complex. I don't think just putting down a row of houses and a road in front of them and another row of houses and maybe saying, OK, we'll give them a green to for the kids to play is enough, that it needs to be more articulated than that well especially in the city where it's more where you're working in a more dense environment and you don't have so much green space but i i mean i would doing social housing for me would be an, would be an absolute pinnacle you know obviously i love the the so the cultural and big scale more glamorous projects we're doing but i think housing is is endlessly fascinating and because it is trying to build the world people live in and trying to build it in a way that is suitable to the lives people have now, to the world we live in, to issues of climate and but also particularly to social issues. I mean, this just about how how you how you group things together to encourage positive rather than negative behavior, how to encourage people to be neighborly and friendly rather than distant from each other, but also to allow privacy, to allow that it's it's actually very complex. I would say it's one of the more complex things. And it's interesting how, you know, the people think that say designing a hospital is really complex and that only people who've done hospitals before are allowed to design hospitals because it's very complex but the complexity of that is something anyone can learn it's just mm. research that you need to do to find out to make no mistakes in the making of say operating theater or the relations between things the complexity of how to make housing for people to live in is nothing like as simple as the complexity of a hospital or you know a high-powered laboratory complex because there isn't so much objective information available it's much more about trying to understand and try to look at other examples and why things did or didn't work because it's about human behavior it's not about technical issues of quality of air or temperatures and um, equipment so human behavior is always at the subject of architecture i would say or human life and activity and trying to enhance i mean i suppose really i would say you're trying to make a place for people to live which enhances their lives and helps them rather than is in any way a problem to them and that's maybe as you know as much as and that's the same thing you're doing when you're building a private house for an individual who you have a brief but they become more like a kind of a, a partner or um 
you know, you become very close to a client when you're designing a private house. But in a sense, you have to put yourself yourself in the place. You have to talk to as many people as you can. Sometimes when you're doing social housing, you're lucky enough to be able to meet communities that are going to live there. Other times nobody knows is going to live there yet. And that's not possible or the bureaucratic aspects to it prevent that from happening. But even if you do meet a lot of people who are going to live there, there still needs to be a more universal. You're working for society at large as well as for the individuals who live there, because over the years, hopefully many people will live there and it has to be adaptable to their needs. Mm. I think there's, um, I mean, my reading of some of the way in which even housing is discussed is that there is a an incredible desire and an attempt to reduce it to something that's quite simple, you know, and our kind of fixation on a system and all we have to do is crack some sort of system and then housing will all emerge. And, you know, mm -hmm. when we were thinking, when we were preparing to talk today, I, I was reading that piece back to Tim's piece about a house in Cliff. And I just thought, well, what if that was a description of the housing system? And mm -hmm. somehow you have to admit that actually this, as you say, is really complex and difficult terrain. And, and the first thing we all have to do is admit that and then and sort of um, figure out a way of building and embracing this complexity. But also, I suppose, as you've been talking about, noting that buildings are active, moving living things with living human beings and all kinds of creatures as Tim says in them and I and so therefore we might just accept that we'll never know exactly how to do it but the problem is that we just have to get on and do it in some fashion and are too worried about fixing one way of doing it in order to deliver everything do, do you know what I mean it's, it's yeah um, I do but I th and I think also people need to yeah as you say everybody needs to admit it but everybody needs to work together to try and yeah. make it better and I, th I believe actually although we are in this terrible crisis I do think that the local authorities are really trying to make good housing and I mean obviously they're under huge pressure now because suddenly there is money to do make a lot of housing but I do think that their aspirations are to make good places for people to live and there are in a way, there's much more flexibility and freedom in the making of social housing, I would say, than than in private housing projects, you know, big scale projects for the private sector, because there's more sense that that the local authorities need to and are thinking about the things I'm talking about, building society or making a place that has, for whatever their reasons, places that are practical and livable and where people will relate well to each other where good neighborhoods I mean they want to make neighborhoods I think mm. and that's really important because it's not the it's not just the individual house it's how the houses relate to each other how you get from the public I mean, getting off the bus to your own front door is probably a really important part of having a good place to live it's not just when you get in the front door it's it's how you get to there and what sort of landscape you go through who you meet how you meet them whether you can, if you want, just keep your head down and keep going and be on your own, or you can chat, or there's that whole that whole question of how, especially in in more dense housing, you know, multi-story housing, how do you move from the public to the moment of the the key in the door? Mm. Um, and I would like, you know, I, I'm very interested in that as an architectural challenge. How do you how do you build that environment? So it's almost not the brief. The brief obviously is to design. The unit when you get into it with all the things that work and the right amount of storage and whatever but it's it's it is more than that it's you're you're actually designing how a how an individual family relates back out to the public realm and the, the number of layers there are between their front door and and the street 
or in some cases, no layers, it's a door on the street. But I think it's a, it's a really interesting and challenging conversation. And I, I suppose the optimistic side of me says that there is going to be a lot more social housing built so, very soon. And that hopefully that will generate more discussion about what is the best way to do it and what are the factors that we need to have uppermost in our minds when we're thinking about it. Like, what is the brief beyond the flat? And I think the brief beyond the flat does exist very much in the local authorities' minds. And I hope, and of course, also in a lot of private developers are very interested in the world beyond the unit. But um, it, it is the world. It's the world we're living in. That's what we, that's, no small task to think no. about. Um, to return maybe back to where we started, which is on the pier in Randstone in yeah. Tim's house. What's ha what's going to happen now in terms of the campaign, and where where does that go, and what can people? That's um, do? that's a good question. Where we are, as I said, is that a very generous person has agreed to buy the house, so that the the executor can sell the house to to the. The Robinson Centre, which is which is at the moment a putative uh, name and not not yet we don't yet have anyone to run it. So what we're looking for now is an is two things. We need uh, capital funding to do the work to the house because it's in very very poor condition. And ideally, we would do the project that Tim and Mairead wrote the brief for, which is to add to it, to demolish parts and keep parts and add to it. So we need capital funding at least to repair and make the house usable, or ideally to build the centre. And then secondly, and perhaps more challengingly, we need to find an institution or institutions or a body to run the centre. And since the university in Galway pulled out, having agreed to do it, we have started to contact a lot of other universities and institutions. But it could well be that it ends up as some kind of partnership, maybe the local authority. I mean, I, my feeling is the bottom line is I would like this place, this place in the world, which Tim wrote about and, and made his own, to be retained in his and Mairead's memory. And so it might be that it's, it's a tea room with maps on the wall and books you can read and you can walk out and look at the garden that he made and you can understand his work and his place and that might be run by the county council. Or it could be that it is a research centre that they wanted it to be. But I think the for me, the main issue is keeping the memory of their uh, work and their presence in the place, keeping the physical things like the garden, the, the weird numerological garden that Tim made out of concrete blocks, which is part of his uh, mathematical obsession, to keep things like that, which are in a way, I think, a kind of cultural landscape, a cultural ground that he has made in with associated with his name and his work and that his work would be there available. But I actually think there's so much other stuff that came out of Roundstone. There's Kate O'Brien's work, there's Gerald Dillon. There's a lot of artists and writers over the 20th century who worked out of there and there's nothing, there's no place where you can access their work. So one of the versions we have is that it would be a kind of cultural centre for any, any cultural activity or work that happened in the Roundstone area. But it's a big ask, I mean, it's a big task. So we're at the moment, we're just a working group. We're about to start a session of a series of kind of brainstorm sessions to get a clear strategy about how to move on. I think that oddly enough, it might be. I mean, there are, there are probably people in that area who who could afford to donate to the capital works. I think finding someone to run it 
and understanding how that would work in perpetuity and how that would be funded uh, is is the biggest challenge. Mm. But one op- one thing I'm thinking about is approaching all the universities, for example, the heads of the schools of architecture in all the universities and asking them if they could in some way uh, undertake to use a centre if it was there, to run courses out of it, not to have sole responsibility. But I think Tim Robinson's work is already is and will continue to be of importance in in the universities and beyond, but in so many different disciplines. And that's what's mm. so amazing. He really was a polymath. I mean, it's you know, he touches on geography, geology, topolo- topography, cartography, literature, philosophy, mathematics, obviously, and he and he was a visual artist as well. So his paintings and drawings are in the house. So it feels to me like and, and that he is appreciated, certainly in this country, but also beyond. So uh, I, I don't ha- I haven't yet got a clear sense of what the model is. And I sort of stepped. I, I just jumped into this by saying we can't let it happen that the house because what was the university simply said, if we can change the will so we can sell the house, we'll do that. But otherwise, we're, we won't take it. And then John, John Drever, the nephew, felt the only th- he, he couldn't afford to keep it and yet pay, and pay the inheritance tax. So he would have had to sell it just to pay the tax. So all all we've done is say, okay, that's not happening, and it hasn't. Ha- that isn't going to happen now. But unfortunately, I've probably bitten off, you know, quite a big thing, and I'm not quite sure uh, where it's going to go. But there's a lot of goodwill, and um, I have to work out with John Drever, I suppose, the other main uh, protagonist, how to turn that goodwill into something more practical. So I suppose we very quickly need to find someone to run the campaign in a more permanent way because I'm just doing it in you know in the evenings when I'm not working. If you would like to read more of Tim Robinson's work, then it is widely published. And the text to which you refer, A House on a Small Cliff, is available online on the Irish Times website. Just Google the title, I'm Tim Robinson, and up it comes. Thank you to Sheila for her time, not only in making the podcast, But it seems to me O'Donnell and Toomey are always somewhere trying to hold on to something, something more than their job requires them to do, but because they do believe in the value and importance of culture, particularly in how it is found, but also, as Sheila points out, potentially lost, in the places we design and build. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and share it far and wide. Music is by Sinead Finnegan, recorded live, and I know because I was there, in the Trinity Chapel some summers ago, and it is kindly paid for us by the Dalmain String Quartet. Keep listening, and until next time, stay safe. Mm-hmm.